everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome on this beautiful Monday. First Monday in November. That's right. If this presages the whole winter, we're in good shape because it's lovely out there today. Yes, it really is. <laughs> I suspect we'll have some not-so-lovely times ahead, but that's yes. okay. We well, live in Texas, really, so... It is 80 degrees. It's kind of... It is. You would like it a little chillier outside, would you? Oh, I'd be happy with this all year round. Yeah. This would be great. Yeah. Yeah, anywhere between 70 and 80. <laughs> <laughs> you could, can we narrow it down a little bit more maybe for you? 70 and 80 and where it would rain a lot, but only at night. Okay, so and, make everything green, but not but not mess up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay. Anything else? Nope, that's... Picky. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't sound that way at all. So, hey, so we're glad y'all are here today. We are going to begin the book of Numbers today. And this will be a hoot because I really have never been through Numbers in any significant way at all. And Patty hasn't been. I went back over all of the sermons for the last 20 years. Wow. Which is easy for me to do because I keep this whole yeah. really well organized list of because it's all it's all, all the background studies. He is so organized that I've really. written. They're it's... all available online if anybody wants. Even go go back and find the one for the first Sunday in November in two thousand and five. It's there on the internet, available today at scottengel.org, and it's free. So wow. okay, so there were eight sermons from drawn from the book of Numbers over those twenty years, but. Basically, only two small passages from the book of Numbers is all that we've preached on. Because, wow. because it's wow. just not a book people know. It's called Numbers because guess what? It's a lot of numbers. It's filled <laughs> with a lot of numbers. And so, but this will be very cool. So we will have a good introduction. And you know, it's really, it is one of the five books of the Torah, right? There yes. are five books of the Torah. Yes. Um, or the Pentateuch, which is the Greek word for five scrolls, the, the, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And um, Genesis, we know. Exodus, we know. Leviticus is purely a book of the law, set at, they're receiving it at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Numbers is where they're getting their, themselves ready to go to the promised land, and they make the trip, and then five is Deuteronomy is like this big, long, last speech from Moses before Joshua, under God's leadership, is going to take them into Israel. So that's kind of like, but I've got, I've got an introduction. We will, we will get, kind of bring ourselves up to the book of Numbers. I have a few slides and things for that today. So we have, feel like we're connecting some dots and yes. things. Okay. So today may be the day. That those gold-edged pages get Yeah, see, stuck. Numbers is one of those books. So there's that. You, the, if your Bible's like mine, the pages are going to be a little stuck together right there. I'm sad to say, but it is You've made it jokes true. about it in the, in the I past. I have. You have, so. Especially Revelation. That's my classic joke. Yes. Is Revelation of the book where all the gold gilt on the edges of the paper is yes. all stuck together. But that's no more. A lot of a lot of the folks that have been coming to St. Andrew for years have gone through Revelation. Right, we've done Revelation a number, a number of times. Of times. Yes. And now Arthur's always uh, preaching about Revelation, if you notice. He yeah. is. He uses it a lot, which is a good thing. It is a good thing. It's got some, as you always say, um, Revelation has the the best scenes scenes of worship. In the, really, in, in many ways, the only scenes in, of in actual worship. You've got to kind of stretch it to get to... 
Isaiah 6. Um, but Revelation, there we go. So, my friends, um, what else do you have today? Since we met last Monday, the Rangers won the World yes, Series. That's happened. That's exciting. That was very exciting. Yeah. Cowboys came painfully close last night. Yes. Talk about a game of inches. Wow. That was a game of inches mm -hmm. last night. So that, that was too bad. But um, anyway, we're yeah. here on this Monday. And this Monday. Um, shall yes. I get us started? Uh, Want me to go ahead and pray? I think you should. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today on this beautiful Monday. We are beginning a journey through the book of Numbers, and we do pray earnestly that your Holy Spirit, who has called us here and dwells in, dwells in each of us, will guide us forward through this and open our minds and open our hearts and take us to a place of understanding um, about this this very ancient um piece of writing that is obviously an essential part of the story of of your work in this world and, and our journey as your people. All this we pray in God's name, in Jesus' name even. Amen. Amen. Okay, so. I'm going to move over to the other side. Okay, desk. Patty's going to go on to the other side. So the Torah the tradition, the Jewish tradition around Torah is that Moses wrote all five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not, you know, that's not a scholarly view today. And indeed, Moses dies in the book of Deuteronomy. But still, it illustrates the... Um, the way, the cherished way that the Jews viewed the books of the Torah. Indeed, I think for many Jews over history, they've been sort of super sacred, seen as being like super inspired, just just kind of a kind of a cut, a little cut above the rest of the um, Hebrew scriptures. They're that important, the Torah. Now, Torah, Torah is a word that refers to the five books, but it's also just a more general word. It simply means law, often translated that way, teachings, instruction, because God's law is not, there's nothing arbitrary about God's law. In God's law, God is teaching us how we are to live with one another and to live with God. Um, and some of it is very specific to the time that the people lived in for whom it was written. I mean, right? It was written thousands of years ago. So it, it isn't like it just kind of fell out of the sky today in 2023. It was written for a nomadic people, a people who, who lived in a world really pretty far removed from our own, but there's still people. There's still people. And the more that you read your Old Testament and even the New Testament, you see that the world might change and technology changes, and but the people are people. And, and um, I just finished, we're getting close to finishing the stories of David in, in the book of Samuel on my Tuesday class. And 
Every, every story of David is a story that is retold countless times in our world, some for good, some for not. So, we are going to do the book of Numbers, though. We're going to make this journey together through it. So, I thought that the best way to get started at this was just to trace the story of God's work in this world and bring us up to the book of Numbers. For some, this will be a review. You might even be bored, but for others, it have, might not have heard this because I really haven't done any big six-act thing anymore. I use a six-act play to talk about the story of God's work, okay? And act one is the story of creation told in Genesis 1 and 2. God makes everything there is. He pronounces it good. He makes humans in his image. He gives them a beautiful place to live and to work. And in Act 1, when the curtain comes down, it's all just good, 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 good. They are to be fruitful and multiply. So um, they are to... Adam and Eve are to become one flesh for to, to that end and um, live as husband and wife. All those words come from the first uh, two chapters in Genesis. But when the ch curtain goes up on chapter 3 in Genesis, and now it's very dark. And if you think of music in the background, it's very foreboding. Um, because... Act 3 and 4, the Act 3 and the 6 and the 8 subsequent chapters all tell the story of human rebellion against God. That's, that's a really good word to use, the human rebellion against God, where, where Adam and Eve, though given everything, they want to know what God knows. And so they do the one thing God told, asked them not to do, told them not to do. Don't eat from a particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. But they do, and instantly things fall apart. God comes to look for them and can't find them because they're hiding. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. I mean, it's just a cascading set of problems culminating in their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. They will not get to eat from the tree of life. So their rebellion, their sin, to use another word, brings them toward death, to death. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. That's where it comes from. The, 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 second, um, the second act in this six-act play. And when the curtain comes down in the sixth act, after the flood and all the rest of it, it's just, oh my. It all just seems so lost. Because even after the flood, what do the humans do? They start building a, a tower to the skies. They're disobedient again. They're rebellious again. And it just seems like surely God is going to just leave these humans to their own mess and head off somewhere maybe and try again. And that brings us to Genesis 12 and the beginning of Act 3. So that's where my slides kind of pick up. So I'm going to disappear behind them for a second here. Okay, so, oh, look at this. No class next week. Yes. Patty and I will not be here. So no class next Monday. So we will pick this up the following week, whatever, however far we get today. Okay? 
So we're going to do the book of Numbers, and we are at Act 3 now. Act 3 begins with Abraham. It's just, um, it's, it's fascinating to me that of the three great monotheistic religions in the world, Chris, great in terms of numbers, um, not all equally <laughs> great in terms of theology and ethics, but in terms of numbers, um, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all, all claim Abraham. In Genesis 12, 3, God comes to, to Abraham, um, has told him that he's going to leave his ancestral home and make his way down to Canaan, and, and Abraham is indeed going to do that. And God says, gives Abraham three promises and really asks nothing in return. That's, it's, it's just this, he says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. At which point, we sort of gasp and we realize that God is launching this rescue project through Abraham for the sake of humanity writ large. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And, and I'm just telling you, if you really want your Bible to begin to make more sense to you from Genesis 12 all the way through to Revelation, you have to keep that promise in mind. All of the families will be blessed through you, God says to Abraham. And that project comes to its culmination in whom? In Jesus. And what is our task? To carry that good news to the world. All tracing itself back to this promise in Genesis 12, 3. So the story of Abraham is told in the book of Genesis. Uh, the story of Isaac and then Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons are all told there. This is a little map showing how far Abraham ended up traveling to, to go where God told him to go. Very good moment for Abraham to do this, to go down to Canaan. Um, it was not unpopulated. There were other people there. But he told these are these three big promises. And I... You know, that last one is the one that people forget. And it's an anchoring one, I think. Should be for everybody in their biblical theology because it make it helps you understand what God is really about. About doing. What 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 is what is God really doing in this world? Well, this the keeping of this promise is what God is has been, is doing, and will do in this world. So, as I was saying, Abraham's story is told in the book of Genesis and the story of his sons. Um, and at the end of that story, the family sadly is in Egypt because of a great famine in um, Canaan. That is the story told in the famous <laughs> Broadway play, Joseph and the Magic Technicolor Dreamcoat or the Amazing Te Technicolor Dreamcoat. That story tells the reason why Jacob's family is all in Egypt. And when you open the book of Exodus, you find that they are living in slavery and have been for a long time. And Joseph's relationship with the Pharaoh has been forgotten. And so the book of Exodus is about what? The book of Exodus is about this this 
big salvation of the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. I mean, in this particular slide some artists did, that's Moses there standing on the seashore, and God is parting the waters. Those are the waters on each side. A famous moment, you know, um, uh, recreated in quite a few movies about the Ten Commandments and about and about Moses. But it is the it is the great. Here, here's something I was talking with Lauren about this today. This is the great salvation event in in the history of of Israel. From that point on, once God had saved them from Pharaoh, their response to God, properly understood, was a response of thanksgiving and gratitude because they had been saved. They had been saved. Whatever they were do, going to do, it wasn't really about being saved because they had been saved. And I think it's, a, it, it's such an important sort of change in viewpoint from the way people see this. They arrive at Mount Sinai and there God is going to give them a couple of things. Um, here's another dramatic graphic image I found somewhere one time of salvation. That's rescue. These are the words that go with the book of, of Exodus. So they've made their way southward. We don't really know where Mount Sinai was but they pretty much make a beeline after after leaving Egypt and they typically we think we think of it as deeply in the south down there and when they get there they encountered this mountain where Moses had encountered God in the burning bush that's the connection when God leads them to the same mountain that where Moses had met with God in this bush that was burning but not being consumed. Okay? And there, God gives them two things. One is his law, his ten, the Ten Commandments, and the other is, are the instructions for the tabernacle. The law and the tabernacle. God is going to dwell with his people in a way God did not dwell with any other peoples on this planet and they needed to live in a certain way and provisions had to be made so that God could dwell with them and that is part of what the law accomplishes with the outlining of the priests and the rituals and the sacrifices. Those are mechanisms. I've, used, I've thought about this as being like a splint, something to hold, hold the people, the sinful people together um, so that God can dwell, <coughs> God can dwell with them. But it's not the end. It's not the goal. The goal is genu genuine reconciliation between humanity and God. That's what the promise is about in Genesis 12, 3. And the tabernacle, well, that's God's home. So if you look at this picture of the tabernacle, you see, and this is going to factor into numbers, so I'm going to spend just a wee bit of time on this. 
if you look at it, it's this large rectangular area, um, and there is an inner fence, right? There's a fence there, and well, we'll call it the outer fence. There are various altars and sort of barbecues are what they really are, slaughter tables and stuff set up outside, and then there is this tent called the Tent of Meeting. Um, you and I will usually call it the tabernacle, but it, it's rendered both ways in Scripture. So when you go inside, you find things like what? What do you find in a home? You find a table with bread on it. You find a lampstand so that you have light in your home. And you find some of these various appointments or furnishings that are suitable for a place where God is going to dwell. I mean, that's, I think that's basically the idea. And then in the very back of it, there is this little curtained off area, back of the tent of meeting, a little curtained off area, which is the holiest of holies. And in that area, they would keep the Ark of the Covenant. And the, on the area above the Ark of the Covenant, above the top of it, was, it was like the portal to God. It was like the place where, where heaven and earth met. Heaven and earth met right there above the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So they are given all of this instruction at the, at, at, at Mount Sinai. Um, before any of that begins, they're asked, are they ready to do this? Do they want to enter into this agreement about law, this treaty as it, we can think of it with? And, and they say yes. In fact, they're asked three times. Three times the people say, yes, yes, yes. We're ready, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready. And so God begins to give them the law and um, instructions for the tabernacle. And sadly, it isn't long before they get tired of waiting for Moses, who has gone up to meet with God, to, to come back down. And they decide to rebel. And they make a golden calf and they praise it for having saved them out of Egypt. And it is a dark, dark moment. I've read that for the Jewish rabbis, that is really the darkest moment in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, is this golden calf incident down at the bottom of Mount Sinai. So bad that, that Moses has to persuade God to go on with the people. God says, no, I'll send an angel. I'm, I can't go. They're going to get consumed by my wrath. A little bit like flying too close to the sun. They're going to be consumed by my wrath. But Moses takes God through this discussion about how, no, God needs to go. And so God relents and God will go with them. And then they build the tabernacle. Um, exactly according to the instructions, all the right materials and all the right workmen. And the Holy Spirit gives the workmen the skills and the abilities to do what they need to do. And at the end of the book of Exodus, the presence of God settles into the tabernacle. And it's so magnificent, so... Um, it fills the temple's to the degree that Moses can't even get into the tent. He can't, he can't get into the tent. 
And that's basically where Exodus ends. And then when you come to the book of Leviticus, well, the book of Leviticus is just a law book. There isn't really anything like in terms of narrative, you know, like the people went here and they did X, Y, and Z. It's a book of the law. Um, and it's mighty fascinating. And a lot of people don't realize that the God's teaching about love your neighbor as yourself, that comes from Exodus chapter 19. So even Exodus, which can be pretty off-putting because there is a lot of weird stuff in it, um, is worth our time because there's a lot of magnificent stuff in it as well. Not just the weird stuff about, you know, not, not cooking a baby goat in its mother's milk and things that you're just kind of trying to puzzle out. What's that all about? Why am I being told this? So... When you after the book of the law of Leviticus, you come to the book of Numbers. Well, the book of Numbers is a where the people God is going to have the people organize themselves for the march with the tent. They're going to set it up and have to take it down and set it up and take it down. And like any good leader, God knows these people need to be organized for this. If they approach this as just a gaggle out in the wilderness, it isn't going to work. Um, I was uh, pleased to see that yesterday in yesterday's sermon, Arthur talked about the church militant, which is about the disciplined nature of God's church and our focus on mission in the God in God's church and our readiness to serve. I served in the military. That's a phrase I use. So we are called to serve in the church militant. It's a very old phrase and for people who don't put an ounce of effort into understanding things, it can be off-putting, but it should not be. With just a little bit of explanation, it's, it's older, but it's not off-putting. It is about being in service. It's like onward Christian soldiers, okay? That's just, it's to me, so much of it is be, about being, being disciplined. So we'll see in the book of Numbers that there's a lot of that organizing that goes on in order to make this trek. Okay? Okie dokie. So that, my friends, was my introduction. Who wrote the book of Numbers? Traditionally... It was, it was claimed that Moses did, but I wouldn't hold to that. We don't really know. There were writers, editors, compilers. We're pretty confident that all of this stuff came together in its final form centuries before Jesus. Some of it during the time of the Babylonian exile as the people had to take what they had and, and use it to... to tell the story and hold the people together because they weren't on the land anymore. So, anyway. Okay, Patty, do you have any questions? Do you think of, did you think of anything that I should I follow up that with? No, I thought okay. that was a good, a good... Anybody, anybody got anything? Nope. Nobody has put anything, but Scott, you know that there is this 20-second delay after you say that before... <laughs> I, I need to have a lot like a okay an interlude something like this maybe. Do, 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 do. Yeah. With some applause, how about that?
I have this. I have a few sound effects over here. That's great. How about this one? Uh, that's not much. So, okay. Now, given the nature of numbers, I'm even approaching it differently in terms of how I do this. Normally, what I have in front of me is a uh, is an iPad that I have opened because I can make the font as big as I want it to be. And, but now what I'm having open is an iPad and this, I have this Bible here, this super giant print reference Bible that's on a little stand on my left. And the reason is because if I can see more of the pages, the organization of the book makes more sense to me. I think I can lead us through this better than if I just sort of all I see is the sentence we're reading and the next 10 sentences. Does that make sense, Patty? Yes. It, I it think just it does. put everything more in context. Right? Yeah, so you just kind of see what's actually happening here. So I'm going to put my glasses on here. And I still don't see any questions. So we're going to press into chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to get a drink of water before I start. Yahweh spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. That would be this tabernacle tent, right? In the desert of Sinai, because they're still at the mountain. On the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And so what does that tell you? that they've been there a long time because they make a beeline from the Red, from Egypt through Sinai down to Mount Sinai down to Mount Sinai they make a beeline for that and now they have been there for a year and a half for 15 months more 18 months 21 months 24 months it's been a long time um, because they're now in the second month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. So at a minimum, it's been, they've months. been down there 13, well, let's just figure this out, Patty. 13 months minus maybe three months to get there. Okay. They've been there like 10 months. Yes, Min minimum. Minimum. Yeah. yeah. So God said, he said, verse 2, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. Now, this is God speaking to Moses. Moses is supposed to do a census. They're going to head out, and they need to know who's with them. There's a lot of organization in this. It's not just a traveling gaggle. It is, these are God's people. God cares about every single one of them, and they are to be aware of exactly who they have um, in this in this in this family because these are all cousins, right? That's true. All of them have the blood of Abraham's flowing through their veins. All of them can trace their ancestral family tree back to Jacob. So, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name one by one. You and Aaron are to count, according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who were 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. 
Aha. Right? So what do sentences provide? The bureaucracy. Sentences, sentences provide the bureaucracy with in, information about who can serve. I mean, I was... I avoided the draft because I went into the Air Force, but I was draftable, right? Things like the draft run on run on the backs of the census, and then people registering for the for the draft. So okay, so they're gonna they're gonna know all the men over the age of twenty who are able to serve in the army. Now one man from each tribe, each of them the head of his family. It's to help you, help you do this. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. From Reuben, Elizur, son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shlemuel, son of Zerishadai. From Judah, Nashon, son of Amminadab. From Issachar, Nathaniel, son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helan. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, Elishema, son of Amahud. From Manasseh, Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, son of Petazur. Don't anybody laugh at my pronunciation. You're doing great. Yeah. So I need to stop here and explain something. Because if you go through and you are going to count... These these are all the tribes, right? If you remember, if you've been through the stories of Jacob, you know he had 12 sons. Reuben, look back at verse 5. Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, these are all the, the sons of Jacob. And there are 12 here. However, the list gets a little bit mangled <laughs> because what you have are two sons. You don't have a tribe of Joseph. There is no tribe, tribe of Joseph in the history of Israel. In the history of Israel, you have a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh, and you come upon them all of the time throughout the Old Testament. Ephraim and Manasseh are the two sons of Joseph that he has by an Egyptian wife. Isn't that interesting? Joseph has two sons by an Egyptian wife. Ephraim and Manasseh. And they will be, they will take their their name in the list of 12. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, if we take one out of the 12, Joseph, and we put in two, Ephraim and Manasseh, well, Scott, I haven't done arithmetic in a long time, but that's 13. And I'm going to say you're right because if you look down the whole list, there is one son of Jacob who is not listed here. And that's going to be Levi. Because God is setting aside the tribe of Levi for something else. And so when you set aside the tribe of Levi, then you end up with 12. 10 original sons and of Jacob and two grandsons of Jacob the two sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. And if you, when you read through the Old Testament scriptures, you look at the maps of where the tribes live, those are the names associated with the 12 tribes of Israel. So, was that a 
Was that clear, baby? Yes. Yes. I don't know. I don't think I've called you baby too often on the podcast. But anyway, there we go. That's that's Patty for those who are listening in. <laughs> okay, so so verse eleven from Benjamin. Abidan, son of Gideonai, from Dan, uh, ah, Ahezer, son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pagiel, son of Okron, from Gad, Eliasaph, son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enan. You know, I mean, I could spend time learning all these pronunciations, but I, I darn good. wouldn't be a good use of my time. <laughs> so, um, but if you want, if you are really into pronunciations, this is a good time to show you what the resource you should get. Haven't done this in a while. This is the HarperCollins Bible Pronunciation Guide available on Amazon. And it's very helpful. And not only does it have all these names and other things from the Bible, in the second section, smaller, but still, and there's a second section with, um, what do they call it? Non-biblical terms. So a lot of important terms and words and places that are not in the Bible, but are very much associated with Bible study and, and so forth. Like Caesarea Maritima. So, okay, so now God has said, look, you're going to do this census and you're going to get, you know, a helper from each of the tribes. It's going to be the head of the tribe, head of the family. That's what all these are. These are all families, but they are tribes. That was, that's the organization structure. This is a, this is a tribal society, tribal society, as the ancient world was. They didn't have nation states like we do now, they're, they're tribes. So, verse 16. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes, and they were the heads of the clans of Israel. A clan being another name for what? A tribe. Like the McCoys and the... Who? Who was that feud between? Gosh, I don't know. Something, something meant the McCoys, right? Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm getting so old. My brain is a sieve. Somebody out there. Probably type it in here in half a second. Okay. Okay, so. 17. Hatfields, right? Hatfield, yes. Did you look it up or did somebody I, type it no, in? No, it just came to me before I even ah, got a chance to. Very good. Yeah, there we go. Josie. There we go. Yes, everybody knows. Hatfields. It's only us, Patty. <laughs> Hatfields and the McCoys. Yeah. So, right, so you have, so it's really, so let's talk about this for a minute. They're soon going to leave, not soon, but when they're ready, because they don't actually leave until chapter 10. They're, when they, when they're, they're getting ready to leave by the 12, by tribe. So these tribes really matter. When they settle in the promised land, they're, they're not just all going to settle and mingle one amongst the other. Each tribe is going to be allotted land. This is the land for Judah. This is the land for Naphtali. This is the land for Manasseh. This is the land for Ephraim. And those designations and those allotments of land will persist all the way through the Old Testament scriptures. Right, so now when you read the prophets and they talk about Ephraim, 
you it won't like what in the world is Ephraim? Ephraim is merely one of the twelve tribes, and often Hebrew prophets and poets and others would use a name of one of the tribes to speak of the full family of God, the full people of God. Right? So, anyway. How many disciples does Jesus have in his inner circle? Because disciple is kind of a general word. Disciple just means um, uh, like apprentice. It means more than simply follower, to be honest with you. It means something more than that. Um, but... In, in his inner circle, how many does he have? Twelve. He has twelve. In fact, in the Gospels, sometimes it's a, you, it's, they're called the twelve. And the English translation will even have a capital T. Twelve. Right? And yes. so why are there twelve disciples? Why must there be twelve? Why must, when Judas hangs himself after Jesus' death, and resurrection. When Judas hangs himself, why must he be replaced? That's a, that's one of the first, not the first thing, but it's one of the first things that happens in the book of Acts. He has to be replaced because they've gone to 11 and there must be 12. Why must there be 12? Because Jesus is forming around himself a new Israel. 12 tribes, 12 disciples slash apostles. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. It's a very, again, these are just little ways that I think will help you, help you stay oriented. So, verse 17. Now Moses and Aaron, okay, so Moses has a brother, and his brother is named Aaron, right? So if you remember the story of the Exodus, it's kind of fascinating because Aaron actually does the speaking to the Pharaoh, because when God says, Moses, I'm sending you to confront Pharaoh, Moses raise, raises objection after objection after objection. Oh, my goodness. It's not a good moment for Moses. He did just he did just should have said, yes, sir, and gone on about it, but he doesn't. Objection after objection. And one of them is, well, I can't speak. I can't do this. I don't speak well at all. And so... Um, God says, okay, well, your brother will do it then. Moses, I mean, Aaron will be your mouthpiece. So, so God speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to Aaron, and Aaron speaks to Pharaoh. <laughs> That's pretty much, I think if you were in the room, that was how it was happening. Even though sometimes it says, it, it does say, Moses says, I kind of think we should still understand that Aaron is like the, like the repeater of things. But in any, in any event, so, verse 17, Moses and Aaron took these men whose name had been specified, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month of this second year after they left Egypt. The people registered their ancestry by their clans and families. And what does that sound like, Patty? The people registered their ancestry by their clans and families. To me, it yes. sounds like the story of Jesus when Joseph yes, is taking Mary census. down to, uh, you know, register them in the Roman census, census, you know, and they've got to return to their ancestral home. 
So the people registered their ancestry by their clans and families, and the men, twenty years old or more, were listed by name, one by one, as Yahweh commanded Moses, and so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. Now we're only going to read the first two because there are, you can count them yourself, there are twelve of these, I counted them earlier, <laughs> myself, from the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel. Who is Israel? Jacob. Jacob. So, this is kind of like a whole overview of Old Testament key is. stuff, isn't it? it yeah, is. so I'm getting to do all kinds of cool things here. Okay, so where... And do you want to remind people when, when Jacob was um, renamed Israel? I'm about to do that, oh, okay. by golly. We're a good team. We are. So, <laughs> when they leave Egypt, they are the Hebrews, right? They're not called Jews. They're not called Israelites. They're just the Hebrews. They're a people. And um, uh, when they, you know, when, when not, did I say when, when they left Egypt? If I said that, that was entirely wrong. When Abraham leaves Haran and his family and goes down to Canaan, they're just the Hebrews. Um, and really just Abraham and his family, to be honest with you. So, Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob, one time, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but he wrestles with who, uh, an angel, God, whom at the river Jabbok, and he wrestled all night long, and in the morning, when it's over, God gives Jacob a new name, and it means one who struggles with God, and that name is Israel, because El is the word for God. El, E-L, is just a word from God, from which is derived Allah, for the Muslims. The Arabic word, Allah, is derived from the same thing. So Israel struggles with God. And that became, Jacob is often referred to by that name. And it becomes the name of the family. And then later it would become the name of the kingdom, the Israelite kingdom. But it all goes back to Jacob. And right here it is a reference to the person Right? Because verse 20, from the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, slash Jacob, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, one by one, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. Wow. Okay, next tribe up. From the descendants of Simeon, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were counted and listed by name one by one according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Simeon was 59,300. All right, and then we have Gad. We have Judah. Notice Judah, well, you may not realize this yet, but Judah has the largest number, 74,600. 
from the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Zebulun, from the sons of Joseph, which are broken up between Ephraim first and then Manasseh, from the descendants of Benjamin, from the descendants of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And notice how formulaic it is. Each paragraph with the tribe is exactly the same. Right? These are... The book of Chronicles in your Bible is a book of record keeping. It tells the story of the kings, but it's very much um, chronicling events and names and and so forth. Book of Samuel, which covers much of the same ground, especially the book of Kings, really, covers the same ground, is, is not so much that way. It's a lot of stories, less record-keeping. But Chronicles is a lot of that kind of thing. And Numbers is that. This is record-keeping of a people who want to be organized. It is their way of binding themselves together. It's their way of binding themselves to their past. Um, for For the Jews, genealogies were really, really important. It was the way of telling their story. was through this tree of of ancestors. It's why Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy. It's not complete. Every name that is in the line isn't in there. It's organized by three groups of 14. From Abraham to David, David to the exile, the exile to Jesus. Um, So it's It is their way of making sure that they remain a people and not a, to use the word I used earlier, a gaggle. So, verse 44. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the twelve leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. And if you went back and you added up all the earlier numbers, they would add up to 603,550. I did not check that, but I bet. Now, is it really 600,000? Because that is just men aged what, Patty? 20 and older. 20 and older, yep. So it doesn't include any women 20 and older, and it doesn't include anyone who's 19 or younger. So if you throw in some of those, you end up with the people of something like 2 million of them. So it's easy to see then, if you're honest with this, and you don't think it means you don't believe your Bible, which is not what I'm talking about, that there's some hyperbole here. Ancient writings, ancient historians, ancient record-keeping, ancient numbers had a lot of hyperbole. Um, Whether you're talking about the Greek historians or the Romans historians or anything, it was... They just didn't view this sort of thing the way with the exactitude that we do who have computers and watches and typeset print and all these other things that we have. Um, Because two million people in the ancient world of, this is how long ago? This is 
at least something like 3,500 years ago, the populations were just not large enough to do that. After Rome fell, there would not be a city with a million people in it until London of the 1700s in the West. I don't know about China. It, the populations are just smaller. Just smaller. People died easily in this world. Half the children didn't make, make it past the age of five. Yes, they had lots of babies. I know they had lots of babies, but a lot of those babies died. And if you didn't die before you were five, you stood a good chance of dying after you were five, before you reached your full age of maturity. Um, people died from disease, famine, plagues. You can't tell the history of any of these places without the history of the plagues. I mean, if you read the early Christian histories in the first centuries, just, just plague after plague would sweep through city after city. And what was remarkable about it was that the Christians were the ones who would go and sit beside the bedsides of these sick people, sick people and try to set up beds for them in uh, open squares and so forth when they had been shunned by their own family because they didn't understand all the mechanisms, but they knew that if you hung around these plague people, you were likely to get it yourself. And so the Christians really did practice what they preached. Um, so I'm just saying there are, there are a lot of reasons why it would be impossible for there to be two million at the foot of Mount Sinai. There's really nothing there besides that. And they somehow have to, you know, God's providing them with food and water. But wow, they've been there more than a year. So in any event, the total number was 603,550. It says they, okay, so Jody noticed, Josie noticed, that yes, it does. It says 20 years older and able to serve. So if you had someone who was more than 20, some, some fella who was crippled or blind, then they wouldn't be counted because this is like an army number. Right. Thank you, Josie. 47. The ancestral tribe of the Levites, however, because Levi, if you go back to the book of Genesis, Levi is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. The ancestral tribe of the Levites, however, was not counted along with the others. Yahweh had said to Moses, You must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant law. Over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it, they are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They are to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down, and whenever the tabernacle is set is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. Okay, so let's talk about that for a minute. This tent, the tabernacle, this whole setup is holy. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy, the people are not. So the way it works is that the closer you get to the holiest of holies, the more restricted it becomes. 
So if you think of the Israel's, Israelites camped out in the desert and you drew a big circle around their camp, Gentiles could not enter that camp. If they wanted to meet, you know, with an Israelite, the Israelite would have to leave the camp and go outside that big circle we're imagining, right, with our mind's eye. Then as you get closer to the tabernacle, you would find the tents of the tribe, of, of the um, Levites, the priests, because they are the ones who are actually surrounding the tabernacle itself, which sits at the center, the tabernacle sits at the center of the camp. And then when you get through that, only the high priest was able to go into the holiest of holies. So there is this in, increasing amount of restriction um, because God is holy and the people are not. God is like the sun, right? In that way, it is. God is pure. We are not. We fly too close to the sun. What would happen to us? Gone, right? So, so I think I, I I've used that metaphor a long time. I think it's I think it's a good one, um, and so the in that way, God is dangerous. They're essentially what trying to have a place for the sun S U N to be with them, and just as at Mount Sinai when they get down there one of the things God says to Moses is you got to tell the people they are not to touch this mountain if they touch this mountain and it is a holy mountain if they touch it they will die so Moses tells the people don't touch the mountain I presume they they followed that here it is if somebody just wanders in violates these rules and touches this they will die it is it is foreign to us, blessedly, because we have Jesus. You see, we live post-Jesus. They live 1,500 years before Jesus, right? right? So, so our sensibilities are all shaped by Jesus. Even if you're not Christian, you're still in the West, you are growing up in Jesus' world. That's where, that's where a lot of the ethics comes from. At least until maybe, <laughs> you know, 30 or 40 years ago. But even in the Enlightenment, okay, um, there, there's still this strong stream of, of Christian consciousness. It's William Wilberforce. It is, the, it is abolishing slavery. It's in a lot of areas. So... You don't allow yourself to be too put off by this. It's simply, it's it's almost. It, I I'm hesitant to use the word, but I'll use it. It's almost like it's mechanical. You fly too close to the sun. What's going to happen? You touch this holy tent, and you shouldn't be. You're not ready to be. You haven't been prepared for it. Whatever it might be, what's going to happen to you? You're metaphorically going to be burned up. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each of them in their own camp under their own standard. That would be their own flag or some other device. 
The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the covenant law. That would be the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. So that my wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. In other words, to, so that they help to serve as what? As like a shield. As like a shield from this holy God who is deigning to dwell with them. In a way, God dwelt with no other people. Think about that. Think about what it would mean for your household if God moved in upstairs. Do you think nothing would need to change? Yeah. A lot of things are supposed to change. And if they don't change, there's consequences to it. Just because it's how it has to be. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the covenant law. 54, the Israelites did all this just as Yahweh commanded Moses. So I have another slide. This is of the organization of the camp. All right, so there's the tabernacle, right? When the temple is built by Solomon and then rebuilt and then improved upon by Herod the Great, this is, it's still basically this rectangular structure, the temple proper, okay? Mm -hmm. So, here is the camp. And there is the tent of meeting, the little rectangle in the middle there. And if you look at the names on the outside, you'll see the names of the 12 tribes. Asher, Dan, Naphtali, Issachar, Judah, Zebulun, Simeon, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, Ephraim, okay? Around the tent of meeting are priests. Now, we haven't been introduced to all these names yet, but I will tell you who they are. There are sons of Aaron, because Aaron is a priest. These are the sons of Aaron. That's a priestly family. At the beginning of the book of Luke, you meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Yes. She comes from the fam from the, she's in Aaron's lineage. So she has like priestly blood in her veins. Mirarites, Gershonites, and Kohathites are all members of the tribe of Levi. Levi has three sons, Merari, Gershon, and Kohath. And so notice how the priests surround this tent of meeting. So it, to go back to the numbers for a minute, if there's a fraction, <laughs> let's just say the Levites have um, the Levites have, let's say, pick a small number, thirty thousand men over the age of twenty, because I mean everybody's been having babies and everything all along. So if they have thirty thousand men over twenty. How could 30,000 men be utilized to take care of this one, right. this right here, right? Yeah. So either they, either they sat, most of them sat um, idle most of the time, or the numbers are just hyperbolic, which is, from my way of reading the Bible, or what I think the Bible is, which is God's holy and inspired word, God breathed, it just doesn't, it doesn't bother me if these ancient numbers are hyperbolic. Um, 
So there we go. Um, indeed, if we go forward in time to Jesus's time, when the story of, of Elizabeth and Zechariah opens, which is how Luke chooses to open his, his gospel, we learn that Zechariah is going to do his priestly service. And why scholars point out to us that, well, you know, it's probably the only time in his life that he has done this. And he will probably never do it again because there were so many of them. They just didn't have enough. They didn't, they didn't need anywhere near the number that there were in the clan of Levi. Back at the beginning or by the time you get to the tribe of, of Jesus, at least these guys are going to have to tear down this tent and everything and pick it up and move it. So, anyway, isn't that fascinating? It is. Anyway, I it think is. it is. And it's like, you know, there really was no choice. It wasn't like these people were called to be priests or, you know, what I mean, a, a higher degree of holiness or knowledge of God or anything. They basically were just told by God that the Levites would be the priests. It's almost like just being, told it by God. This, this is all. So who's so who's the key driver of all of this? God is. It's God's a key driver of everything. You can't take your eye off that ball. God is the key driver of all of this. So everybody in that Levite clan, they're all pastors' kids, no matter what. Like <laughs> well, Arthur, it's kind. Like it's kind of different. Generation it's kind of different, but yeah, they're it's, the tribe of the priests. It's kind of right. I mean, and that's what, that's going to be your job when you grow up and you're a man and. When yes, you, you will be age? trained in yes. how to properly attend to all. There's a lot of rituals around being the priest, cleansing rituals yeah. and how to handle the meat, and, and they will add more and more and more over time. Okay, so how about this, folks? We're going to knock out Chapter 2 in the next seven minutes. Wow. You wonder how that could be. There must be a lot of skipping stuff. That's well, let me I'm just guessing. tell you what Chapter 2 is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, let's start it. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each of them under their standard, their little flag, and holding the banners of their family. On the east toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader of the tribe of Judah is Nashon, son of Amminadab, his division number 74,600. Now look all the way down. Ten... 11, 12, boom, 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 boom. So, verse 32, these, these 12 tribes of the Israelites counted according to their families, all the men in the camps by their divisions, number 603,550. The Levites, however, were not counted along with the other Israelites as Yahweh commanded Moses. Okay. So the Israelites did everything God commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards. And that is the way they set out. Each of them with their clans and family. That would be the way they travel. Now, if I go back to my slide, this is my chapter two slide. Notice on the left-hand side, there's a direction marker. Right? North, south, east, west. Why? Because God even stipulated the direction that the tent was to be put down and the side, whether it's north, south, east, west, the various tribes were to be. And so this, this um, 
arrangement is what exactly what you find in chapter 2. It's just a visual representation of chapter 2 with some additional priestly stuff thrown in, which we'll get to a little bit later. So isn't that cool? Yes, it is. So we, if you look, if you have any kind of study Bible or anything, like I see in my little iPad one, there's there's another illustration of the tribes around, around the tent, the encampment of the tribes. For us... I think one of the key things to take away is this, what I talked about earlier, that that the, the tent of meeting, the holiest of holies, being the very center of this, and working outward, it becomes less and less holy. And there are restrictions about who can, who can get closer and closer. And you know another place you see this? You see this in the materials used in the construction of the tabernacle. The closer you are to the holiest of holies, the finer the materials. Gold. Move out a little bit, silver. Move out a little bit further, maybe copper or tin, whatever. I can't remember. But it's that same idea. Because God is holy and the people are not, and all of this priestly stuff, all the care they are to take about cleansing themselves and offering these sacrifices, it is all about enabling an unholy people to live with their holy God. And when Jesus is, is crucified, Do you remember in the Gospel of Mark, the first thing that happens after Jesus is crucified? We read that not long ago. The curtain, curtain temple torn. is torn in two, yeah. signifying what? That that's all past. That's all past. Jesus has reconciled with God, and now we are striving to be the holy people that God has already made us into. Do you see the difference? We are striving to be, to act like, to be the holy people God has already made us into. Wow. Yeah. So, anyway, when we come back in two weeks, we will pick it up there in chapter 3, and it will be some more stuff kind of like this. But this has actually been, I think, more helpful to folks than I might have thought, these first two chapters of Numbers. And we will probably cover more chapters next time because they're not going to start moving actually out of this place heading somewhere until chapter 10. Wow. So let me make sure we get out from behind the slides. There we go. Oh, wow. there we there are. There we are. Look, I got the sun. I know. You can tell the head. clocks are different, can't you? <laughs> yes, you can. You can. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for being here, everybody. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah. It's a hoot. Um, we will see you in two weeks, as Scott said. But we will be thinking of you all next week when we're at Epcot. Yeah, the International <laughs> Food and Wine Festival. Yes. yes. <laughs> we will toast you. How about that, that Betty? That's right. Yes, we, we will toast them next we week. So thank you so much for being here with us today. And hopefully we'll see some of you guys tomorrow up at St. Andrew for the Tuesday class. And um, just stay well, stay, stay yep. healthy. and. We'll see you guys in two weeks, and I'll okay. just close out in prayer. Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this beautiful day today. 
We thank you for watching over us and taking care of us, God, and just waking us all up this morning to give us this day. We pray, God, that you would watch over us in the coming two weeks. Keep us all healthy, God. Please keep us safe. Watch over us. Guide us, Lord. Help us to become more Christ-like, Lord. Help that be something that we actually strive for, God, in our lives. Lord, just hold this group together, and we will see everybody soon. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. Bye, everybody. Enjoy the fall weather.